Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, should teachers be declared an essential service? If the majority of Aboriginal communities support pipelines, why are we only hearing from those who don't? And the Prime Minister is in Africa. We tag along. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Lots to talk about today. Uh, uh, My goodness, Uh, Prime Minister is in Africa. We're also going to talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Also going to talk about Chair Girl and Soup Fest tomorrow. There's the the best thing on the show right there. The best, of course, next to Marvin Ryder. He's going to stand by with us right now. Uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Uh, As we know, the teachers are in uh, full tilt boogie when it comes to the the strike action and such, the rotating strikes has got to the point where you don't even know when they're or who is out. Um, that being said, there has been the call for uh, essential service, uh, them being deemed an essential service. Is it as easy as it sounds? What are the pros and cons of all of that? Marvin, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin Ryder is here. Marvin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. And unfortunately, I wasn't at the Oscars last night either, so I'm available to chat with you today. <laughs> there you go. Uh, host or no host? Do you care? Uh, no, I in a way it did feel like it was hosted because there were so many people who narrated the event. I don't know if it has to be the same voice all the time. Um, I, I actually thought much of it went along just fine. Now, inevitably, there are surprises. I didn't see Eminem performing. I don't actually even understand why he performed. There was nothing special about the film that he did called Eight Mile. It's not the 25th anniversary, for instance, the way he celebrated uh, Sound of Music a few years ago. But, you know, to each their own. Certainly the crowd seemed to get into it, and, and it, you know, it, it all seemed to have a life of its own. Uh, yeah, you don't want to get me started on Eminem. Okay. Anyway, Marvin, but is this not, like, when we cannot decide on a host or whatever happened to get us to the position that we are, is this just not another example of how divided we are? Yes, well, Chris Rock made a joke of it right at the beginning to say that we've all got tweets. Now, that, God bless him, because I don't tweet, but many people in the entertainment world tweet, and they've all got tweets that they look back on with regret. If the standard is you need someone who's never said anything wrong, then who the hell can you ever get to host? Yeah. And, and especially if you're looking for someone with a comedic take on things, you and I joke a little bit on the air, and of course, joking means that you know it's a double-edged sword. We're picking at something that has deep meaning, but we're trying to do it in a humorous way. Inevitably, people will be mad at us for those things. So can, can you ever find somebody? I think the days of hosting will come back, and sooner rather than later, uh, gives a nice unifying theme, but just who that will be, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm like short of Tom Hanks. I'm not sure who has, you know, who could keep everybody happy and, and nobody uh, upset about it. All right, let's move on. Talk about teacher strikes. There's been chatter as this whole thing starts to ramp up yep. about essential service. Is this as easy as it sounds? What are the pros and cons of this? <laughs> Well, the second one is the better question. Is it as easy as it sounds? Uh, it would take a government to declare a group of people an essential service. For instance, we declare the police an essential service. So we have withdrawn from them the right to strike. And what we do instead is we say both sides are supposed to negotiate. And when it has reached a stalemate, rather than striking, it then goes to binding arbitration. And of course, in binding arbitration, a dice is rolled and, and one never knows which way it's going to go, meaning it might go the way the employer wants, but it also might go the way the employees wants. 
you don't know. But the key for us, the public, is regardless, we're going to get service throughout all that period. We're never going to have to worry, for instance, that the police aren't there, that murders go un- uninvestigated, or that crime suddenly shoots up. We have the same issue oftentimes when, when we talk about doctors and nurses. We need to have them on call. There are emergencies that happen at all times. What do we do? And the question then is, does the government want to declare teaching an essential service? If this was a minority government in Toronto, you wouldn't be having this discussion because there is no way a minority government could get this through. But the current Conservatives have a majority, and if they so wish, they can. They could make it an essential service. Now, whether that'll help them get reelected in three or four years or two years, whenever the next provincial election is, uh, I'm not certain. But yes, it really is just that simple. The government could say, in our judgment, this is a service that cannot be withdrawn from the public. The better question is yours: the pros and cons. Um, when, whenever you take a group of people and you say you don't have the same rights as another group of people that's when you start getting into the slippery slope. In other words, if if the GM goes on strike, well, you know, that hurts us, but no, that's them exerting their collective bargaining rights. If they want to do that, that's fine. Uh, likewise, if the employer wants to lock them out, that's fine. Suddenly here we seem to say these people are different than those people, and, and why does that allow us to have discriminatory legislation? And then you get on a bit of a slippery slope at that point. So uh, who would be for this? Would, be, would this be something that the teachers are for? Is this something that the government is for? Is it, is it more expensive? Is it more efficient? What yeah. are the pros and cons? Yeah, well, again, I, w- I wish there was a simple answer that way. Is it more efficient? Yes, I suppose. Both sides can um, put forward their arguments. If there's a deadlock and the two sides can't agree on something, then an arbitrator hears them and says, I agree with those arguments or I agree with those arguments, and it's done with. It's not months and months and months and months. Does it favor one side more than the other? No, not necessarily. It depends, again, on how strong your arguments are. Now, in this situation, we do have um, a bit of a conflict over what this strike is all about. The teachers are very clear that this has nothing to do with compensation. Yes, they've asked for a 2% increase each year for the next two or three years, whatever the length of the contract is. The province has said 1%. And so compensation is an unresolved issue, but the teachers are saying it's more about the terms of our employment. You're trying to increase class sizes. That affects the terms of our employment. You're trying to introduce online education. That affects the terms of our employment. Uh, Again, presumably in binding arbitration, all of those things would be adjudicated by an arbiter, and, and one side or the other gets their wishes and the other side doesn't. Efficient, yes. Is it is it fair? That's a different question. Uh, why hasn't it been done to date, if it is the answer? Or is it? <laughs> well, it gets discussed. It gets discussed whenever you have a long teacher strike. In other words, if the teachers had complained, they went out for a week, disrupted things a little bit, and then there was some agreement and it was all put to bed to go, we've dodged that bullet. And Ontario has actually had a relatively long period of, uh, of teaching without strikes. Uh, now, whether you want to credit or blame the previous Liberal government, they found a way to get through most of that term of both McGuinty and, and uh, uh, yes, uh, Wynne without having a, a major teaching strike. Now, 
Again, there still uh, has been work to rule in other oh, yes, scale backs. Yes, yeah, yes, right. and and the liberals actually ordered them back at one point and imposed a, a contract that got taken to court and got thrown out, and there were damages awarded. But they had found a way to avoid this, so we haven't had this discussion for at least a decade about declaring them an essential service. British Columbia has had more uh, strife with teachers, and they have had more active debates uh, about declaring an essential service, but have each time stopped short. Do you want to be the government that goes after uh, basically a, a labor or a union-oriented group of people? Probably not. So would the teachers or the teachers' unions not be in favor of essential service uh, status? No, especially if it is broad-based, because I think they are, would be fine if this was only about compensation. Look, if we, we disagreed about how much we're to be paid, fine. We'll put both cases to an arbiter, and the arbiter will say, that's the people who make the most sense, A or B, whatever that happens to be. But they're saying this goes beyond simple compensation. This goes to criteria around where we work. So suppose, again, the province said, we're going to extend the work the work day rather than classes going from 9 in the morning till 3 or 3.30. We're going to extend them till 5 o'clock. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to compensate you for that. We're just going to give you a longer time period. Anything that changes the terms of work, and presumably if this is an essential service, the teachers wouldn't be able to strike about, and this would all have to be decided by binding arbitration. And they're saying, wait a minute, that's wrong. Anything that affects us, we should have the chance to negotiate and sort through. So, in other words, trying to hammer out a deal in and around an essential service would probably be more difficult than hammering out a contract itself. Uh, well, it, it could be. Now, you know, if the government, and this time the, the federal, or excuse me, federal, the provincial conservatives, this is more than just an argument on compensation. If that was all that was going on, I think we actually would have this settled. It's the whole idea that we are trying to increase class sizes, have more students per teacher, in some cases less support per teacher with some of the assistance in class, and also changing this online education. Um, what I suppose makes the teachers most upset is you've got uh, a minister of education, uh, who they're negotiating with, Mr. Lecce, who went to a private school, doesn't have public school education, and then his assistant is uh, uh, Mr. Um, uh, Sam uh, Ooster, uh, Oosterhof, yeah. Oosterhof down the road, who was homeschooled. So neither of these people have any experience in the public education system, and yet they're trying to dictate terms as part of this negotiation. And I think this is one of the things that gets the teachers uh, a little revved up. Do you up think that them. really matters? Does that, is that, is that, I don't know. <laughs> it, it does. Well, it's just, I don't know. It, it'd be a bit like me. Cause you I, know, that's I'm, saying, like, I got kids... I'm I'm schooled uh, through the public system as my kids are. I don't necessarily disagree with Lecce with what Lecce is doing. That's my own personal opinion. So you know because the man I don't know whether he has kids or doesn't have kids or or what way he was schooled. I, you know how does that change his job? You know our our prime minister was so elite he didn't know that blackface was wrong. So yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? I'm I not do. sure. I, I'm not sure if that makes one unqualified for the job. Right. I, but, I, but I'm conscious of the fact, as I'm chatting with you, that I don't have children. I've never had children in the system. I'm a product of the public education system, but I have, for whatever reason, chosen not to have children. Therefore, I try not to give a lot of parenting advice, even though I work with the product of, of many of those parents. I, I'm conscious of the fact that who's delivering the message can sometimes be just as important as the message itself. But in this, in this situation, uh, because the strike has now gone on for as long as it has, and the teachers, to their credit, have found a great way to disrupt things. You wouldn't be as upset, I think, if they just went out. 
And then you knew yeah, yeah, that yeah. you're going to have to organize child care or whatever for the next three, four weeks. You'd understand that. But because it's rolling the dice. What day? Oh, it was yeah. Wednesday this week. Yeah, oh, it's you not never this know. week. Mm-hmm. You never know. And that they've made it really good. They've really found a way to really upset the public at large. But the whole idea of the rotating strikes in the beginning was not to. And, you know, by doing it a little, it's when you ramp them up that it becomes an issue. Because the whole idea with rotating strikes was not to make it an inconvenience for the parents and the teachers. But then when you're holding them several times a week, then it becomes a problem. Right. Well, you you have four different unions that are out at this point as well. That makes it more interesting. And, of course, their thinking was, if you're upset, call your MPP and tell them to back down course, at the same time, you might call your MPP and say, declare it an essential service and make this come to an end. Right. That's the risk they're running during this campaign. All right. Always fun. Marvin Ryder's been with us, uh, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, talking about teachers and being a uh, declared an essential service. Marvin, as always, thanks so much. Have a Thank good you. day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Protests uh, against uh, this uh, against the natural gas pipeline, which is going through British Columbia, uh, has now seen trains halted for a third day uh, in various places around the country. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg is with us, former Liberal MP and uh, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. He is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So let's clarify, this isn't about the Trans Mountain. This is about a natural gas pipeline, correct? <laughs> That's right, and it's uh, on the verge of being built through territory uh, for which there has been approval by that particular tribe. Uh, that is, uh, the Wet'suwet'en tribe has uh, democratically elected leaders who have uh, been thoroughly consulted and given uh, uh, have given their approval on behalf of uh, their uh, residents and on behalf of their tribe, and uh, now we have outsiders uh, creating uh, havoc. They simply don't want pipelines built anywhere in Canada. So it's really a forbearance, uh, if you will, uh, an omen for Trans-Canada pipelines uh, as they, or rather I should say the Trans-Mountain pipeline as it uh, prepares to build on the BC side at some point uh, down the road. Uh, help us understand this because, uh, again, we've seen this with the Trans Mountain Pipeline and, and uh, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, say there were 129 groups that were consulted. 120 of them agreed to all of this. Uh, you're talking about the same thing with this natural gas pipeline. Their elected officials have already approved this. Why do we spend more time talking about the small groups of Indigenous communities that aren't elected, that are against that the, the projects that they're really not involved in, rather than the majority of the Indigenous communities who are behind these projects? Well, I think it's a crisis of uh, leadership in Canada. Uh, you have the courts now saying, hey, you have the right to do this. You've consulted both thoroughly and extensively, and no one in this country has a veto. Uh, if they did, then that would be, you know, uh, that would certainly lead to chaos. But in the absence of any pushback, that is arrest, detention, removal, uh, and that the government is sort of signaling that it wants to sort of, uh, you know, sort of watch these things through and wait them out, you effectively have, uh, you know, actors uh, wanting to get press to demonstrate that they're being hauled away and, of course, selectively using their own video is to show perhaps one side of this, but the reality is that uh, a natural gas pipeline, one of the cleanest forms of energy in the world, which is going to be used to build a $40 billion 
facility, LNG, that will send clean Canadian natural gas to places like Asia and India is now being threatened by a handful of miscreants uh, who, if I were Prime Minister, uh, would be locked up very quickly. Anybody who shows up to those places would have the same thing happen. Uh, I think Canadians have got to recognize that there's, you know, we're a very tolerant people. We do believe in the rule of law, uh, and we do understand the importance of Indigenous uh, groups' consultation and approval. They've given their approval. They have been consulted. Uh, and, of course, uh, we've gone through a very extensive process, uh, in this case, going back to 2013. Uh, so like the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, which, of course, is delivery of oil and, and some gasoline products, uh, the reality here is that uh, this really does signal that uh, if people are going to take matters into their own hands, then they ought to be dealt with accordingly. And if we're not prepared to do that as a country, uh, then we're in far more serious trouble than I thought, because that really means that uh, it's rule of thumb, not the rule of law that re- that prevails, uh, and it has a number of very negative uh, and very astonishing outcomes for the country. But, you know, it seems that this picture is always painted, again, you know, of modern society against Indigenous peoples, but in fact, the majority of the Indigenous peoples elected along this route approve this. So... Do we ever hear from those Indigenous communities, the majority, who have voted for this? Do we hear from them as opposed to this sort of always sounding like it's modern society against the Indigenous communities? This is actually Indigenous communities arguing amongst themselves. Yeah, and I think the vast majority of those Indigenous communities are on board because many of them have uh, very much a lot to gain in the first time. So why would they not speak out against the hereditary chiefs that are causing the problem? Well, I think they have spoken out against them. I just don't think that uh, our friends in the mainstream media are spending a lot of time worrying about that. I think we're uh, we're looking at uh, uh, some chiefs, uh, very few chiefs, who are able to uh, elicit and bring in people from outside in order to make the uh, and misrepresent what is actually happening there. And so you have really eco vandals parading and par- and, and parroting. Uh, and suggesting that they are the indigenous people of that region, and everybody sort of every yeah, and everybody sort of well, it's painted a picture like the majority do not want this, and the majority are behind this when that in fact is not the case. No, the the majority very much is behind this. The majority of Canadians, the majority of indigenous people, and I mean, what tell me what uh, you know, blocking a uh, uh, the CN line near Belleville has anything to do with a uh, uh, coastal gas link up in north northwestern British Columbia? The fact is you can't have Me Tooism and copycats. And, 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 of course, if a company has acted in a way that is in violation of the law, in the spirit of the law or the letter of the law, that's one thing. But I think we've been, uh, as a country uh, and as companies, extraordinarily deferential uh, to the point where I think Indigenous people, and you, you, you see them, they're representatives, they're very much in favor of this. They realize this is hope and opportunity for them to grow and prosper in their, you know, important cultures. Should they uh, be speaking up? Their... Because it seems as if the others are painting the picture for the whole community. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Uh, I, I don't know how one would speak up if uh, they're not given uh, the audience in order to uh, to convey that message. But I hear it. I see it. I retweet it. I try to do what I can to demonstrate that uh, this isn't just one-sided. Everyone wants a good scrap in Canada, but no one's prepared to understand that by doing this, you're dividing the country. So we're not just talking about dividing Indigenous groups, pitting one against another. This is all part of the green environmental agenda in Canada, to create and sow rancor and division uh, and distrust, uh, and of course, at the end of the day, anarchy. 
So, you know, I, I'm really getting tired of the green fraud in Canada because, this, uh, if anything, natural gas is seen by everybody as the way out. Uh, if you're not going to build nuclear plants, the next best thing we can do is natural gas. And this is a solution to the world in terms of climate. But uh, when it comes to consultation specifically to the lands themselves, it's been approved not once but several times by the courts. And the company's uh, Coastal Gas Link has gone through extraordinary steps in order to not just be inclusive, but to also take into account the sensitivities and the, the importance and the demands uh, and the needs of those communities who are now partners in this. And so for the first time, you have an opportunity to put uh, Indigenous peoples' interests ahead of everyone else's. And even then, you have a select small group of party poopers who want to go in and uh, destroy it because they want to somehow flex some kind of muscle which they clearly don't have. Look, there is the rule of law in Canada. And we, uh, if we're not prepared to obey that, then I think everybody who has parking tickets today or anybody who, uh, uh, you know, uh, we can just damn well do what we want and drive through any red light that we want uh, because laws don't matter. If they don't matter, then I think uh, Canadians have to understand that we are gravitating very, very quickly towards anarchy. If that's the green agenda in all their climate hysteria and all their alarmism and their ability to manipulate both the media and the message, then I think Canadians best be prepared for a country that is about to dissolve because it's not just this issue, it's many others. Frontier tech, uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which you and I have talked about, uh, and of course the uh, devolution of uh, finances coming to Canada. We're in a very, very precarious position. The Trudeauites know this. Uh, even though they have little caucus meetings behind the scenes saying what uh, development should proceed and what shouldn't proceed, the reality is at the end of the day, uh, we're not just talking about economic implications for the country. We're talking about the disintegration of Canada as we know it. So rail uh, passenger freight and passenger service between Toronto and Montreal, Toronto and Ottawa disrupted over the weekend. 92 trains cancelled, uh, 16,000 passengers affected. I must admit, I'm I'm surprised this was going on. I'm surprised this is this is allowed to go on. This is it's a major. Before. It's a major rail line. It's happened before, but I think everyone understands that you know eight days of strike by CN workers back in say November uh, had an impact on the Canadian economy as a whole. And so this has been going on for four days. Look, either you uh, you either you fish or you cut bait. And, so uh, they make time. they make CN firing up fire up the trains again when there's a labor dispute, but yet there's nothing done here. Yes, well that's the point. Uh, and the federal government, uh, well, while our prime minister is around trying to buy a, buy a seat at the UN, yeah. uh, we have uh, the unfolding of a pretty serious crisis, a crisis in part of his own making because he tried to play, play you know cutesies with these guys. He tried to uh, you know to somehow suggest that. Uh, uh, you know, social license, and which many took to mean veto, uh, is somehow the way in which business is to be conducted going forward. The reality is that the business of this country is in a mess. Well, and of course, the business is getting worse. He can't make that happen between the community itself. So how is he going to make that happen between the country? Because it's the community itself that is just as divided, it appears, or certainly a minority, no, a minority of this. it. I get Canadians get this. Canadians who know and believe in the, in the legal system know that it's one of the most flexible in the world. And the fact that this has gone through the courts and the courts have looked at this and have been extremely uh, judicious in the way in which they've handled this and have told companies that they have to go the extra mile and they've gone the extra mile. At the end of all of this, there has to be the prevalence of the rule of law. If you don't have that, you know, the alternative is anarchy. And I think people get that. Look, we don't like the fact things happen, and we don't necessarily agree or disagree with them, 
but to basically say, look, I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, basically take away all my marbles. I'm going to stand in front of something that's important, shut down. You know, if, if someone were to say, let's shut down, I don't know, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the QEW um, or the Lincoln Alexander or something like that, and say we're going to shut down for five or six days, and then we're going to also shut every other, uh, you know, uh, transport line into our city here. I think many people would start to think this is unacceptable because the good of the many comes before the interests of the few. In this case, we're not talking about a few. The few have had their voices heard. It's been tried. It's been measured. And it's been found to be incorrect. Uh, this is in the interest of the country as a whole and, more importantly, to the broad community of Indigenous people. And it's for that reason and that reason alone that the Prime Minister should be firing up the paddy wagons, arrest the whole bunch of them, and, if necessary, uh, be far more vigilant. I told you a long time ago, Scott, when we first had this discussion about Trans Mountain, uh, you know, it involves bringing in far more military uh, to, to protect the lines that we're building and to ensure their safety. And that's what we're going to have to do because there's billions of dollars at stake. There's a reputation of a country that's at stake. There's also the viability of our nation, which is at stake. Anybody who thinks it's a joke, I suggest they start going online and talking to people that they may know in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and a good chunk of British Columbia. People are fed up. Uh, with uh, our bending over backwards and placating organizations and groups that are really, at the end of the day, eco-vandals determined to destroy Canada's energy sector. So what's the difference? Uh, where's this whole protest in regard to the natural gas line going? What's the difference between the natural gas line and what's happening with the Trans Mountain? Well, Trans Mountain is seen uh, as you know, a conduit for oil. Uh, this is natural gas. If we're seeing this much... Uh, of a firefight with respect to natural gas, it doesn't bode well for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And uh, many times we've discussed the fact I don't think it's going to happen, simply because I don't think anybody has the intestinal fortitude or the spine to push back and to stand up and say this is wrong, not just mention the fact the Trans Mountain Pipeline is what about those, unaffordable. What about those 120 Indigenous groups along the route and so on that did approve it? Yeah, well, apparently they don't count. Uh, it's only when you are against this that you count. That's the way our media, that's the way uh, we are trained to think, that all this is about climate and the name of climate, the cult of climatism, allows any, any justification to say no. Uh, the reality here is that Canadians are going to have to wake up again, or they won't be Canadians in the next 10 to 15 years. We're in a tipping point in this country. And uh, as a society, I think we have to ensure that uh, uh, we, we maintain and reinforce the basics. One of, them, one of the most important ones is democracy, the rule of law. Uh, so where, in regard to the natural gas pipeline, all legal hurdles been uh, cleared? This is now just an issue of protest? There's nothing yeah, left more to do, that's right? all it is. So the courts have, have said this over and over again. This line has met every single test. The company has worked very hard to ensure that it's uh, worked cooperatively with every single uh, group along the line. And at the end of the day, those who have issues, those who have uh, concerns are certainly free to express them, but they cannot block something which and hinder something which is absolutely important in the uh, towards the national interest, not just to mention respectful to the vast, vast outnumbered majority of indigenous people who have a lot to say and there's certainly a lot to benefit from this. Imagine a young woman or a man who wants to become a manager or become involved in the trades. Uh, long-term leases, what that will mean for their elderly, what that will mean for schools, what it will mean for areas that are often deprived of some of the social services that we take for granted here uh, in the big smoke. Up there, uh, this is a great opportunity. It's an opportunity that will be ongoing. Natural gas is going to be around for a thousand years, 
And so this is really something where this partnership, this consent that has been given, is important that we now honour the obligations that we have. As a country, we have an obligation to stand behind our judicial decisions and behind our legal decisions. If we're not prepared to do that, then that says something about your federal government. It doesn't have the backbone, the spine, and it certainly has lost the moral authority to govern. As I said, if the Liberals mess up on this, and this somehow doesn't get resolved with arrests and people put in jail for what they're doing, then I think the federal government, the federal Liberals, uh, should be subject to a non-confidence vote in the House of Commons. Where would this discussion be, whether it's this pipeline or any other pipeline, if, again, we, you know, we've talked many times about Indigenous ownership or, you know, control of or, or certainly profiting from. Once Indigenous communities are when, are when they do profit from this sort of thing, wouldn't this discussion be over? Well, it's not just profit. It's also how, how the responsible use of resources. Many Indigenous groups pointed out that natural gas being sent to places like China would have the effect of improving the climate there and improving uh, the global uh, you know, amount of uh, emissions, CO2 emissions. So there's a number of vicarious reasons where Indigenous people aren't just looking at, hey, what's in it for me? It's what's in it for our entire community as a whole and the civilization and humanity as a whole. And that's so I think there's... Uh, there's a lot to be learned here from from those of us who just sort of shrug our shoulders and say there's no big deal here. It's a big, it's a huge deal. And uh, if the federal government isn't prepared to stand up and defend its authority and its responsibility on behalf of all Canadians, including the majority, vast majority of Indigenous people, as I said earlier, it's a government that must fall. It should not be a government that's in power. It's, uh, if they're going to uh, bend and twist and uh, appease uh, or ignore those are all options that they have exhausted. They can't do that anymore. This is a critical piece of infrastructure. And if we can't even get a natural gas pipeline built in Canada, we're in very, very serious trouble. And we are letting down the very people who have mm-hmm. put faith and stock in our, uh, in our institutions, including most notably our judicial decisions. Judicial decisions which have said yes to the Indigenous people and their ability to take advantage and to prosper and to benefit and to see proliferation as a result of... Uh, as a result of this uh, this build. Dan McTagg has been with us, Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me again, Scott. Bye for now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, and after a weekend of campaigning for African votes to get Canada elected to the United Nations Security Council, Canadian officials are feeling a bit more upbeat about the prospect that Canada just may edge out Norway and Ireland for the two vacant spots that are on the council. Although um, many have said, and from those countries will say, that uh, Canada does not contribute monetarily uh, near as much as those countries do. Uh, They concede that the uh, campaign may still fail, but if Canada does lose, there will be no weeping Uh, simply because the campaigners say Canada's diplomats at the United Nations in New York City and in the embassies and missions abroad uh, truly are happy warriors, and they're already seeing their work yield benefits that, uh, in their uh, opinion, will improve uh, things around the world for for everybody. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in David Aiken with Global News. He is with us now. David, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, no problem. So, David, the objective here, building relationships or getting that seat on the U.N. Council? Yeah, and I guess uh, you're definitely going to get one, even if you don't get the other. And you were just sort of reading from the piece I had up online, which is 
the campaign in itself, is, uh, the, the, the people who are running the campaign, feel it's, it has proved to be a worthwhile thing. Uh, Canada has a lot of experience and services. Our businesses have a lot of experience and services and things to sell. Let's think about agriculture. We know how to farm. We know how to grow food. We've been doing it really good for, you know, 150 years. And there are lots of countries in Africa, for example, that are looking to implement new ways, new techniques to uh, use land more efficiently and grow more and better food. So lots of opportunities uh, on that way. In Central Asia and a lot of parts of the world, uh, they have issues getting clean water and maintaining clean water and and designing and building clean water systems. Again, a lot of Canadian companies with a lot of expertise and knowledge. And so, so this relationship building that's happening on the background of trying to win a UN Security Council seat, uh, doors are opening that had you know not been closed, but nobody ever tried to go through them before um, in terms of diplomacy. And again, that that's helping in the views of these diplomats to improve Canada's place in the world and hopefully uh, you know extend Canadian values and at the same time. Maybe improve some trade. Uh, obviously, uh, other countries like China have have jumped on board and are investing in Africa. Uh, you know more than just humanitarian relief and such, but actually involved in infrastructure and business, as you're uh, alluding to as well. Um, so obviously, that's a great spinoff. Getting back to the UN Security Council uh, seat, what does that do for Canada? Why is that important for the Prime Minister? So. Obviously, we're a G7 country, we're a G20 country, and it's important, it has been for, important for Canada since 1945 to serve, and really being on the UN Security Council is an act of service, and it has benefited Canada. Uh, we've been on, what, six, seven, eight times, I'm trying to think now, but once every, uh, you know, eight, nine, ten years, and when Canada has been on it in the past, Canada has been able to advance its own um, uh, ideals in the world. Think of the landmine treaty, trying to get landmines around the world. I think a lot of Canadians are broad, broadly agree landmines are a bad thing, and that's something that happened during uh, Chrétien's time. Uh, right now, we've got a couple of Canadians basically being held hostage by the Chinese. Well, one of China's most senior diplomats anywhere in the world sits at the UN Security Council, and if you're a member of that Security Council, every single day you're going to go to work and you're going to be able to get in the face of that Chinese diplomat. So it's a way for Canada to be right there at the center of attention or the center of the world's biggest stage, if you will, and have daily interaction with some of the most influential diplomats on the planet. It can be very good for Canada when there's a problem, like we have with China right now, and it's good when we say, hey, there's a problem we think in the world that uh, needs to be addressed. This is the place, to one of the places. Uh, that Canada can do work uh, trying to fix things. It appears that Norway and Ireland have a bit of an edge uh, simply because monetarily they contribute more, and they've certainly been vocal about that. Uh, but does that matter? It, it, the Canadian side that was, I was, I'm in Kuwait right now. We just got here a few hours ago. I've been in Ethiopia and, uh, over the weekend uh, at a meeting of the African Union where Trudeau was meeting a lot of these African leaders. Now, the diplomats in those meetings say the African uh, leaders were not complaining about Canada's level of foreign aid. They're more interested in being seen as partners for investment, partners for trade, uh, partners for culture and educational opportunities. That's what they say. Norway, yes, absolutely. The Norwegian prime minister was also at these meetings, meeting with African leaders and saying, you know, Canada's kind of a bit of a, you know, it's a rich country that's a bit of a miser. So that is the pitch being made against us. The biggest thing, I think, is it takes a long time to, to campaign and win these things. Norway and Ireland have been campaigning for 10 years. 
Trudeau really has only been at it for about a year or two because the first four years of his uh, mandate was really all about the White House, Trump, and negotiating NAFTA. So he's sort of been distracted. So Canada's kind of playing a bit of catch-up in that sense. And the other thing is, too, is that the partisan aspect of our domestic politics. One of the reasons in 2010 that Harper, the Harper government lost the bid for the U.N. Security Council seat, there were several, was the opposition leader then, Liberal Michael Ignatius, actually said Canada doesn't deserve or the Harper government doesn't deserve a Security Council seat. And that kind of partisan stuff doesn't gets noticed at the U.N. and doesn't play very well. So it's got to make sure everybody's on side, when I say everybody, from all parties in Ottawa have to be on side behind a Security Council bid. I'm not sure. There isn't that objection, but I'm not sure there's that enthusiasm for Trudeau's bid right now. So we'll see. Uh, Raptors president is there. What is his role there? Yeah, it's great. Now, you know, I'm, I'm a political reporter, but I, I'm also a big fan of the Raptors. Yeah. It's kind of fun to see, you know, get inside and inside a jury's head and go, hey, what about this trade or that trade? And he's wise enough to know not to tell reporters anything, of course. But basically, his role here is is, is to open doors, and and so the conversation gets started with a lot of African leaders. Masai Jury, though he was born in England, he his family moved to Nigeria when I think he was nine months old, so he basically grew up in Nigeria. Definitely, as he said himself yesterday, he considers himself a son of Africa, and uh, he's got a big uh, foundation called uh, Giants of Africa, that is, he's in the, he's on the continent uh, many times uh, during the year. With that, and of course, some of our best players on the Raptors: Pascal Siakam from Cameroon, Serge Ibaka from Congo, uh, OG Ananobi also has Nigerian roots. So the Raptors are kind of, you know, there's a lot of African basketball fans that are cheering for, you know, the NBA champion Raptors. So so Masai has been using that as an entree to talk to African leaders. Remember I said they wanted to do cultural partnerships and education, and Masai's all into that. He thinks that's terrific. So he's there basically to support, uh, certainly support Canada, but he's also there to support the continent of Africa and development of Africa, as he says he's a son of Africa. He was with, we were in Kuwait because we visited the Canadian troops that are uh, stationed here in Kuwait uh, that are, that are you know, basically fighting Daesh up in, uh, in Iraq and northern Syria. And so Trudeau came to sort of say thanks, but he brought Messiah along, and Messiah got to say, uh, you know, thanks to the troops as well. So it was mm. uh, a bit of doing a bit of a goodwill ambassador kind of thing. David Aiken has been with us. Global News, he is live in Kuwait following the Prime Minister. David, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's talk about the flu locally and the typical flu that goes through every season and what we can expect in Hamilton this year. Let's bring in Matthew Miller, Assistant Professor of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences with the McMaster Immunology Research Center and is with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to speak to you today. Before we get to the typical flu and what we're experiencing in the area right now, anything you want to comment on in regard to the coronavirus? Uh, obviously, there's a, a lot of commotion and chaos in regard to this. But as I pointed out, it appears that the, the typical flu that we experience every season uh, would take more than, than perhaps the coronavirus uh, has at this point or is. And the, the concern here is about the speed in which it spreads and such. Anything you want to add to your thoughts on this? I mean, only that I think the risk to Canadians um, posed by this novel coronavirus remains extremely low. 
Um, we only have, uh, I think, seven confirmed cases right now in Canada, and all of those um, cases have been people who have uh, been to China recently. And that's a good sign. We want to see that we're, you know, catching these people um, who are returning and identifying them. Um, and they're, uh, you know, undergoing proper quarantine and isolation procedures. Um, we haven't seen any spread within the community. And that's, that's a really good sign so far. Um, of course, we, we have to continue to, you know, monitor the situation as, as you know, there's daily and weekly changes. Um, but right now, the risk to the average Canadians extremely low. What would happen if a case was detected in Hamilton? Are a hospital system ready? How does this get handled? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of our hospitals have been um, briefed on what to look for. Um, they're all equipped with diagnostic tests to uh, determine whether or not infections are caused by this novel coronavirus. And really, the infection control procedures aren't a tremendously different at the intake stage from what they would be for flu because the virus in many ways be behaves a lot like flu. And so the fact that um, this outbreak is occurring during flu season makes things complex in the sense that it may be hard to differentiate um, the symptoms from flu symptoms. On the other hand, though, it's good because hospitals are prepared um, to deal with these infections using the infection control procedures uh, largely that are in place during flu season anyway. Does the fact that we're dealing with the coronavirus and talking about it, does this help you spread the message about common flu? Does this at least make people aware of this sort of thing? Well, I hope so. I think that, you know, um, we tend as humans to sort of react to the sensational, right, and what's new as opposed to what's familiar to us. And I think that what's really important from a messaging perspective is that um, we compare this coronavirus outbreak to something that we do understand and have a lot of experience with seasonally, uh, like flu. And certainly, um, you know, if, if anyone is concerned about this coronavirus outbreak, it would only be rational to be concerned if you were also very concerned about flu every year, given the right. tremendously greater number of cases that flu causes. So what is, and I, I, maybe we don't even know this yet, but uh, we obviously know that there's similarities between the coronavirus and the average type of flu. What are the differences, similarities? Do we know at this point? So I think there are a lot of uh, unanswered questions given um, how recent this outbreak is, obviously. Uh, one of the, the major ones being um, how severe the average infection actually is. Mm. Within China, the death rate um, is certainly higher than what we see usually from uh, seasonal flu. But that is unlike, or that's likely to be um, an overestimation at this point because most of the confirmed cases are probably people who are the most severely ill. The actual numbers of cases are likely much much higher because there would be a lot of people who aren't sick enough to warrant going to the hospital. In countries outside of China, though, the death rate is is almost bang on what we see with with seasonal flu. And so um, as we continue to detect more and more cases and understand this new coronavirus better, um, we'll be able to make a more sound judgment. But it, it is certainly um, possible and maybe even likely that that the actual 
um, severity of illnesses resembles um, seasonal flu. So uh, uh, we've said that more die from the typical flu than this, but however, in China, those numbers have surpassed what would have uh, taken the lives with the normal flu. How come the numbers there uh, higher? Is that just simply because of the density of the people? There's just a um, lot of people in a small area. Yeah, well, I think that the the number of cases, um, the number of deaths in China is still much, much lower, actually, than what we would expect with the seasonal flu. Oh, so it is lower than, even for them than the average flu. It is, okay. yeah. So so um, it the, the number of total deaths has surpassed what we saw with SARS, but that's um, because of the fact that there's been a, a, a tremendous increase in the total number of cases. The death rate is actually much lower than what we saw with SARS. Um, and, and so that's an encouraging sign. SARS caused less deaths, but much more serious infection. Um, but the total number of cases was low. Here we have a lot of cases. Um, and so the total number of deaths is higher, but um, the likelihood of dying is much, much lower. What lessons were learned from SARS? What are we learning from this virus? I think what SARS taught us, especially in Canada, where we had direct experience with the outbreak, uh, was a lot about how to deal with um, infection control when a, when a new outbreak happens. Um, obviously, the, the problem with, with outbreaks is that you know, we are usually unprepared for them because we can't predict when they're going to happen. Um, and we don't always know initially a lot about the bug that's causing those outbreaks. So SARS uh, taught us some really important lessons about how, uh, as, a, as a medical and scientific community, we can be poised to deal with these things effectively uh, if and when they do happen. Um, this coronavirus outbreak, I think the most um, you know, interesting learning point here is just about how rapid the um, amount of information and data about this virus has spread in, in sort of the, you know, ultra-connected world we live in with things like social media and mm. the speed of sharing things on the Internet, the speed of scientific advances. And I think uh, one of the things that's been tricky to balance, and we've seen this play out in news cycles over the last few weeks, is um, the speed at which information is delivered balanced against ensuring that that information is accurate. Because sometimes um, facts come out that haven't been validated yet or, or um and, and then that can cause problems and misperceptions. What about vaccination? We hear that they're working on one. It could be a year away for this particular coronavirus. Is there a vaccination for SARS? There, there is not, no. So um, there, this coronavirus um, is related to a family of viruses that in the past we've associated with common colds, but is also related to the virus that caused SARS and um, another virus that was in the news a few years ago that caused this Middle East respiratory syndrome mm -hmm. um, that was spread from camels to humans. So unfortunately, there's no vaccine for any of those viruses. And so... Uh, so there yeah. won't be one for this one either, probably, or there will be? Certainly not in the context of this current outbreak. Um, if this becomes a pandemic, which one would expect if it were to, it would happen, you know, over the course of months and not years, um, we certainly won't have a vaccine by then. 
All right, uh, getting back to Hamilton numbers, uh, about 500 cases of influenza A in Hamilton right now. It's amazing, you know, a city this size. And of course, of course, there would be people like uh, sick like this. It's just you don't imagine this on a day to day, you know, when you're working and such. Uh, 100 with influenza B. So what would how severe would these cases be? Are these people that are hospitalized or just under care? Well, normally, um, for us to be able to, for, for hospital systems to report cases, they're usually confirmed, meaning that that someone has at least gone in um, to get checked out. It doesn't necessarily mean that the cases are extremely severe. Sometimes right. people aren't sure whether or not they might have a bacterial infection, and so their motivation for going to see their healthcare provider or going into you know an emergency room or a walk-in clinic is more to determine whether or not antibiotics might be appropriate. Um, You know, uh, only about sort of one-tenth of influenza cases or fewer um, are serious enough to warrant hospitalization. Mm. Um, So most cases, the, the severity of cases that we're seeing this season is in line with the severity of cases that we're used to on a season by season basis. The one thing that is a little bit unusual this year is there's um, unusually high numbers of cases caused by the influenza B viruses, and those are the ones that um, disproportionately tend to cause infections in in children and younger adults. Uh, Difference between influenza A and B? Influenza A um, is capable, is the type of virus that is capable of causing pandemics. And part of the reason for that is because in addition to infecting humans, influenza A infects a whole lot of different animals as well. Everything from birds and chickens to horses and dogs and cats. Um, Influenza B virus is um, a related virus, but it only infects humans and uh, has never caused pandemics historically, um, and, and we wouldn't predict it to cause pandemics in the future as well. And again, one of the major differences in terms of how this uh, how this you know plays out year to year is that influenza B tends to target younger people. Um, uh, whereas flu A sort of targets everyone non-discriminately. Mm. Uh, so this is a typical season for the flu in Hamilton. Um, does the addition of the coronavirus complicate this for uh, medical staff in any way? I think the the thing that um, the coronavirus outbreak um, raises concern about is, is capacity. So right now we're in a good place because, again, um, you know, there are very few cases in Canada. They've all been um, identified in people who have recently traveled to China or been in contact with someone who's traveled to China. And so um, the risk of community spread is low. But, of course, what, uh, you know, hospitals are always concerned about is, you know, how do we deal with the capacity issue if the um, transmission and number of cases becomes more widespread? And so it's that issue of capacity that poses uh, the most problem, I think, during influenza season, where capacity is already being pushed uh, due to the standard sort of you know, cold and seasonal flu cases that we see this time of year. Uh, face masks, lots of discussion around this. Does it help during flu season, whether it's a coronavirus or, or just your typical flu? Do those help or not? So the type of 
face masks that um, are normally widely available for sale and that you see some people wearing um, are the surgical type face masks. Usually they have some elastics that go around the ears or the head and they have one white side and one blue side. Um, there's not very good evidence that those face masks protect you from um, getting the virus. Uh, what they can be effective for is helping prevent you from spreading the virus if you're ill. And that's why um, if you go to a walk-in clinic or a hospital ER, um, they ask you to tell them if you've had a fever or signs of a cold or flu over the last few days. And if you say yes, they ask you to wear one of these face masks. Basically, you know, if you're coughing or sneezing, the mask catches it. But if you're not infected, there's not very good evidence that that's an effective way to prevent infection. The types of masks that really work against things like flu and coronavirus, um, th these are sort of specialized masks, uh, often called N95s, that are worn by um, frontline healthcare workers and uh, medical laboratory personnel when they're dealing with those viruses, and they're intrinsically different in a lot of ways, and those types of masks are effective in preventing infection. And how long could you wear a mask before it becomes more of a, more of a trap for germs than protecting you from <laughs> yeah. them? Would you not have to clean them or yeah, dispose likely of them? Yeah, not very long, and these things are disposable, so, um, you know, certainly after a day a mask would, would basically be useless. What is the best precaution? The best precautions for both flu and coronavirus are, are just uh, regular hand washing, honestly. Um, avoiding, you know, coughing and sneezing into your hands. Um, and uh, and staying, you know, if you're unwell, staying home from work and encouraging, you know, colleagues, if you're in a management position, um, to stay home from work if they're not well. That's that's really the best way to, to protect yourself and others um, from getting sick with flu. Obviously, the other thing that, that, that's important is people should try and be more conscious about avoiding, you know, touching their face and especially their mouth um, during cold and flu season because that's a very common way that the virus is spread from our hands to our mouth. Uh, and the flu shot. I mean, we hear get it, don't get it. Is it in? Uh, nah, nah, nah. Does everybody need to get it? Who would you recommend this to? So really everyone should get the flu shot. And the reason for that is because even if you're not someone who's at high risk, the chances are that you know someone who is at high risk. That may be um, you know, a, an elderly parent or grandparent or a young child. Um, it, it could also be, you know, colleagues who you don't know are at high risk because they're taking drugs, for example, that might uh, dampen their immune response. And, you know, you don't always know that because there aren't always outward signs. Um, and so that's why it's really important that, that we view the, the flu shot as sort of a, a community or communal benefit. Um, certainly the highest risk individuals for, you know, having severe infections or dying from flu are young children, the elderly, and those who have underlying conditions like lung conditions or heart conditions or otherwise immunocompromised. All right, Matthew Miller has been with us, Assistant Professor, Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences with McMaster's Immunology Research Center. Matthew, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Soup Fest. Yes, it has come around again. Soup Fest is tomorrow. 
Tuesday, February 11th, 11.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m., Hamilton Convention Center uh, by Carmen's. This all, of course, put on by Living Rock uh, Youth Resources, and uh, what a great job they do uh, every year for all of this. Karen Craig is with us now. Karen, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Oh, it's great to come in the day before and just remind people, you know, everyone's important. You know, yep. it's easy to say, ah, I don't have time. When will I go with my work schedule? But you can come at lunch. You can come after work. You can come midday and yeah. listen to the Peter Banting swing tat. I mean, there's a lot going on, and we just uh, love you to join us tomorrow. And basically, man, just imagine the convention center filled with restaurants serving soup, and it's your job to judge the best one. The smell emanating out of that place is absolutely <laughs> amazing. But I know you wanted to touch on the shuttle buses this year. You got people well, coming in from everywhere. it's exciting because we've got, you know, you can park down at the bayfront, and it'll start, like, it starts at 1130, so people can, you know, even about quarter after 11, I'm, there'll be shuttles running continuously from bayfront. But what's exciting? Exciting is Limeridge Malls got really involved too, and cool. um, they've been selling tickets for us. And they have near the old Sears, um, they are going to have um, a shuttle as well. So it'll be every hour on the hour. So we're really excited to have them. Um, participate this year. And I guess they're all getting ready down at the convention center today, loading oh, in. Oh, yeah. I just was talking to Michael, the lead chef from Bocce, uh, and he was saying that, um, you know, they, they've been in three years. I mean, it's when their restaurant opened, yeah. they got involved, and they were saying it's their absolutely favorite event, and they're building their set, because it's it's best display, as yeah. well as best soup, most creative soup, and yeah. heart healthy. So you're voting on all those levels, and then there's special tasting panel that do an anonymous, like they what, what you, blind taste test because right, they don't right. know they don't know what restaurants they're tasting and they'll be judging as well. So for someone who's never set foot in, in a soup fest, describe what it's like <laughs> when you walk in. You're good at giving directions. Yeah, when you walk in, there's as soon as you come up the elevator at the Hamilton Convention Center, which is right downtown, one summer lane, you come up the escalators and there's advance uh, tickets right there with uh, Grosso Hooper Law. Grosso Hooper Law uh, does that booth and they do a great mm-hmm. job. So people with their advance tickets can um, go there and then straight up and then in and then there's 20 restaurants all lined up around the outside, entertainment up at the stage, and Toonie Auction right in front of you. And there's amazing Toonie Auction prizes this year, um, especially with Valentine's being so close. Best Western Premier Sea Hotel by Carmen's is giving us a king suite. And there's, you know, Valentine nice. Roses by um, Jean's Flower Shop. And there's Maple Leaf Tickets and Casual Gourmets giving us one of these massive pots that I think it's worth over $500. And so there's some really fun pick one ticket for two three for five it's a way to add some more money uh, to the pot and then um, yeah it's going to be absolutely amazing and this is Living Rock's biggest event for the youth oh absolutely it yeah. yeah it's really exciting um, yeah I know it's it means a lot and the youth are excited I know one of our girls who's now alumni she came when she was 13 and she um, loves the rock she started to go to school because of the rock, went back to school, graduated high school, and she's hoping to sing us one of her songs. Those this are girl great stories. is amazing yeah. singer. So we'll and and the great thing about Soup Fest is you'll get to meet a lot of the youth down there. And this yeah. is their event, man. They run it. They <laughs> they it's it's they own it. They got ownership of it. And what's really good is not only does this help Living Rock, but it gives you a chance to sample some of the great soups from some of the great restaurants. Absolutely. And I mean, the restaurants are constantly changing in the city, so it gives you a good chance to get down there and sample what everybody 
he's uh, doing. And they're all putting their best foot forward, too, to to get your attention and, of course, win first place. Absolutely. So, uh, again, once again, give us all the details, Karen. So come on down um, tomorrow from 11.30 a.m. to 7.30 so you can see closing ceremonies. You can see the winners if you want to come after dinner. People to also take soup home. There's those special yeah. containers to take soup home. Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's, which is right downtown One Summer's Lane. And again, grab a shuttle from Bayfront if you want or from uh, Lime Ridge Mall. So we hope some mountain people will be coming down and experiencing it as well. All right. Uh, And, of course, we'll be broadcasting live there tomorrow. We'll see you there, Karen. Thanks again so much. That's a wrap for the show. Suit Fest tomorrow, Convention Center. We'll see you there. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.